Tonight's video is brought to you by Universal Yums. If you've been here for a little while, you know the deal. If you're new here, let me fill you in. Universal Yums is a subscription box service that sends you delicious treats and snacks from all around the world. They've sent me snacks from Egypt, Russia, uh, Japan, Asia, all over the place, all over the world. And every month, I'm just surprised by how much actually comes in the box. It's insane how much they send you. Uh, it's the holiday season, and I know Halloween has passed or will pass by the time this video goes up, but um, I still think it's a really awesome time to get you some new snacks, try something new, go out of the box, maybe give it to somebody as a Christmas gift, or bring it over for Thanksgiving so everyone in the family can try it out. It's a lot of fun, and if you want to try it out yourself, there's a link in the bottom of the description, or sorry, the top of the description, so you can order yourself a box. It helps out the channel a lot, and... And I think you all will enjoy it. So pick you up a box, share it with the family, or share it for yourself. And let's jump right into tonight's stories. I heard about it through a guy at work. I worked as a college intern at a medium-sized brokerage firm at the time, and one of the junior executives, Tommy, had taken me under his wing as a gopher and goof-off buddy when he wanted to take a break and blow off steam. One day we were talking about stupid games we played as a kid. I told him about playing Mercy and Rock Duel, which was basically Mercy with thrown rocks. He told me about a game his cousins had gotten him to try one time when he was staying with them. It was called Billy the Bouncing Butcher. He said it involved mirrors and saying some chants until something scary happened. When I pointed out that it sounded like a rip-off of Bloody Mary, he just shrugged and gave a weird laugh. He told me he wasn't sure, but he didn't think it was like that. You weren't supposed to see a ghost or anything. It was something worse. When I asked him what was supposed to happen, he looked embarrassed. That was weird. Tommy was a nice enough guy, but he was super type A, man's man type. Or at least, that's the image he wanted to represent. This was the first time I'd seen him being anything other than serious or sarcastically goofy, and seeing his carefully crafted mask slip for a minute to show uncertainty and shame, well, it got my attention. After a moment of contemplative silence, he shrugged again. To be honest, I, I don't really know. I was with them when we set everything up, but as soon as they started saying the words, I got scared and ran out of the room. They were laughing at me, but I guess they were committed after all that work because they stayed and finished it. They weren't laughing when they got done. I was pissed and embarrassed, but I was curious too. I asked them that night what happened, but they wouldn't say. I tried to joke that I didn't get to know when I was too chicken to say. But they seemed weird, scared even. He shook his head. I went back home the next day, and I never found out if anything really happened, or if it was just bullshit. I almost laughed and told him I had the answer. It was bullshit. But I didn't want to hurt his feelings or piss him off, so instead, I silently nodded as a new idea crept into my head. My girlfriend Carla simultaneously hated and loved creepy things, and I thought I'd remember her saying once that she'd never played Bloody Mary as a kid because it spooked her so much. I knew it was a gamble, as she might just get pissed or refuse to play, but if I could get her to try out Tommy's weird knockoff game, we might have fun or at least get a good laugh out of it. So I pressed Tommy for the details. 
He shifted uncomfortably in his chair for a second, and I thought he was going to refuse or say he didn't remember, but then he shrugged again and told me what they had done. It takes at least eight mirrors. That's probably one reason you don't hear more about it, right? Who the fuck has eight mirrors? Well, my aunt did. She had a big house, and almost every room was filled with all kinds of shit. It only took us like an hour to find eight good-sized mirrors and sneak them all into one of the back rooms that had been emptied for recarpeting or something the next week. We'd gotten the mirrors in the room and shut the door without anyone seeing, but that was the easy part. The hard part was getting the mirrors set up just right. You kind of make a circle with the mirrors, but they have to be angled so that each mirror reflects at least two other mirrors and at least part of the center of the circle, because that's where you're supposed to be. The idea is, if you get it right, you can see your reflections in the mirrors and your reflections of those reflections and so on, stretching out farther than you can see. When we were satisfied with that, we went into the middle and stood back to back facing out towards the mirrors. Then we said we had to say this rhyme together until something changed. Trying to get every detail, I asked him, did he remember the phrase? Frowning his head, he shook at me. Shit, Cody, that was like 30 years ago. It was something spooky sounding to a 10-year-old, I guess. His gaze shifted away from mine, and I suddenly felt sure he was lying about not remembering. I was going to let it go, but I went on. I don't know. It was something like his eyes snapped back to me. Come to me, come to me. You're invited by word and deed. Come to me, come to me. By this offering you will be freed. Come to me, come to me. Wards are mists and chains are rust, for there is only one of us. I burst out laughing. Dude, that's fucking awesome. You really had me going. Very creepy. My girlfriend's gonna shit her pants. But Tommy was already standing up with a frown. I gotta, I gotta go, man. I, I have a phone conference in 10. I'll check you later. And then he was hustling down the hall to his office. I should have thought it was stranger than I did, but I was young and dumb and I assumed Tommy was just playing it up, being dramatic, because that's the kind of shit he did. Anything for a laugh or to look cool. And it was cool. I hadn't been lying. Carla was going to lose her shit. I didn't mention it to her that night or the next. By the weekend, I'd already bought four mirrors for 50 bucks from a downtown pawn shop and borrowed three more from my sister's store. With the one I had hanging in my closet, I had just enough. Setting them up was a giant pain in the ass. It was hard to get the angles just right, but by the time Carly came over from what she thought was dinner and a movie, everything was ready. To my surprise, she was gung-ho from the beginning. I could tell she was a bit nervous about it, but I think she thought it was really sweet that I'd gone to so much trouble to set it up. And like I've said, she really liked creepy stuff, even when it freaked her out a bit. I told her Tommy's story, including the phrase I'd written down as soon as he left the break room that day. I'd written it down on a slip of paper for both of us so we wouldn't mess it up. I told myself my attention to detail was just because it was all cool and creepy as it was. And if I changed it, I would just fuck it up. Because it was all made up. Kids game. Bullshit. The words were just spooky nonsense. I didn't really think anything would happen, so I wasn't seriously worried about making sure I got it right. Right? 
We stood back to back in the circle of mirrors. Initially, I was going to just have candles burning for extra creep factor, but it was too dark. Candles didn't brighten up the dark like they do in movies, and I finally decided to turn on a corner lamp to give us enough light to read our papers and see into the shadowy mirrors. Our reflected selves stretched on forever. Despite being pressed against her back, I could see Carla's excited expression doubled and redoubled just like I could see my own. Focusing on one of my faces, I asked her if she was ready to start. Letting out a nervous laugh, she said she was. So we began. We stumbled over the words the first time, the phrases discordant jumble as we both shifted speed trying to match the other. We were in unison now, though, and I focused on the paper to make sure I didn't make a mistake or throw us off again. By the third time, we were in rhythm, and while I didn't have the words fully memorized, I felt comfortable enough that I lifted my eyes back to one of my reflections. The one I'd focused on before, the one where I could see my face, and behind that, the back of Carla's head. Except, there were two faces staring at me now. In that reflection, Carla's face was turned to face the same direction. I had a moment of unreality where I assumed she must have turned around, even though I could still feel her back pressed against mine. But then my gaze wandered to the other reflections, and all of them were the same as they had been. I should have stepped away then, or at the very least, stopped or stumbled over the words, but somehow I didn't. The chant kept flowing from me as if pulled from my core on an invisible string. As I looked back at the wrong reflection, I saw the mirror that Carla was smiling at me. Smiling at me as she started to shake and shudder, bounce and twist, despite the fact I could feel Carla's stillness behind me as we continued the chant. And then... As the thing in the mirror's smile widened further and its up-and-down motion sped into a blur, it was suddenly gone. It was as though a spell had been broken. These reflections looked normal again, and this time I tried to stop speaking. It worked. I turned to Carla and found her looking at me with a combination of amusement and disappointment. Getting bored already? I smiled at her almost blurting out what I saw or what I thought I'd saw. But that was stupid, right? It all happened fast, and if it had been real, wouldn't she have seen something too? I knew she loved me, but we hadn't been dating so long that I wanted to risk making her think I was a nut job over something that couldn't possibly have happened in the first place, or that I was so spineless that I actually got scared by a kid's game. So I just nodded and returned her smile. Yeah, sorry. It's kind of lame. Are you cool with giving up? She leaned forward and kissed me. Sure, and it wasn't lame. It was cool. She laughed. And a little spooky. For a second I thought I saw something move and it freaked me out. Weird how the mind works. I grinned, feeling relief. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I guess we just spooked ourselves. Two weeks later... Carla was dead. She lived in a nice condo on the north side of town, one of those places with two pools and security guards at the gate. The police claimed they talked to everyone, reviewed all the security footage. They said they had no idea how someone had gotten to her locked apartment, disabled the alarm, and butchered her in her own bed. 
I'm not saying they didn't do a good investigation. Maybe they did. I don't know. What I do know is that they questioned me three times, and each time it felt more and more like I was a suspect rather than a grieving boyfriend. And then the interview suddenly stopped. Two weeks went by without any word. Finally, I called the main detective, a woman named Everly, and asked her if they'd made any progress. I could hear her reluctance to talk to me over the phone, and at first I figured it was because they still suspected me. But then she was apologizing, told me she knew they'd been hard on me, but it was because they didn't have many leads, and the one lead they did have pointed towards me. that they'd finally managed to put my phone's GPS records and then confirmed through my office's security that I'd been working late with Tommy on the night Carla was killed. That was why they hadn't been in touch with me anymore after that last interview, though she was sorry to say there were no new leads so far. Stomach clenching, I asked her what about the lead they already had, what had made them suspect me in the first place. She said that the alarm in Carla's condo had been disabled with the code, and that based on their investigation, aside from Carla, I was the only other person who knew the code, at least locally. Since there were no signs of a struggle, and it appeared that Carla had been murdered in her sleep, it seemed unlikely that she had disabled the alarm herself to let the killer in. That meant that someone else knew the code, had gotten into her apartment, disabled the alarm, and then crept back to her bedroom where they murdered her. I was confused by the logic. I pointed out that maybe she never set the alarm in the first place, or she'd let someone in earlier, gone to bed, and they'd killed her. I didn't want to think that she'd cheat on me, but what if she'd been seeing someone else and they decided to kill her while she slept? Maybe she was breaking it off with me because she really loved... Detective Everly broke in, explaining that while the killer might be some jilted lover, they knew when the alarm had been turned on and turned back off. The system was in every condo. They were all linked to a secure server that was monitored and controlled by an alarm company in Arizona. They had logs of every key press, as well as every time Carla's system had been armed or turned off. On that night, Everly said the alarm had been set just after 10 o'clock and had been turned off less than half an hour later. Around the same time, she added they could put me walking to the car from my office 20 miles away. Again, I'm sorry. I know you probably think we were just being assholes, but it's so often someone the victim knows, and you were the only one with access. Not even the condo manager has the code. So unless someone from the security company decided to drive a thousand miles to murder a random stranger, which we actually looked into, by the way, we don't know how the alarm got turned back off. I could feel my palm sweating against the back of the phone. It had been over a month since I got the call that Carla had been murdered, and talking or thinking about it still sent me spiraling toward either a panic attack or a teary breakdown. But I wanted to understand, to help them understand, if it could help catch her killer. But maybe you're wrong about her being asleep. Maybe she let them in. It could be someone she knew. The detective was quiet for a moment before letting out a small sigh. Maybe, yeah, we can't say for sure. But it still seems weird to me. Weird that she wasn't asleep? I mean, how can... No, not that. The code. The security company, the records they sent, they showed that when the alarm was disabled, 
there was one invalid attempt before the right code was put in. That itself isn't a big deal to me, but it was how the code was entered that stands out to me. What do you mean? Well, when someone knows a code, they misenter it. They usually either hit a wrong button or swap two numbers or put something entirely different, putting in your PIN number instead of the alarm code, something like that. I've looked through all the alarm code entries for Carla's apartment, going back six months, which is as far as they keep that kind of thing. There were a couple of times where the wrong code was entered, but it was just one digit that was wrong. The same digit every time. I figured that it was probably her alarm code was 1681, and the last four digits of her social were 1651. But other than that, the right code was always entered every time until the night she was murdered. I felt myself twisting tighter and tighter with tension as she spoke. Some unknown dread blooming in my belly like a shark and toxic flower that was nourished by her words. Please just tell me, what was special about the wrong code then? She gave a short bark of a laugh. (laughs) Sorry, I I get lost in it sometimes. No, all I meant was that the code, the wrong code that was entered before the right one, was different than the other's or what I'd expect to see, because it was the right code, in reverse. Instead of 1681, someone put 1861. Then 10 seconds later, just before the alarm would have started going, they put it in right. Everly let out a longer sigh. I'm sorry. I don't have better news or more to tell you, but trust me, I'm going to keep working on it until we get whoever did this to her. They never did. And eight years later, I have largely moved on. There was still a hole in me from where I'd lost Carla. Not only as I knew her, but as I imagined our lives might be if we'd stayed together long term. But if time doesn't heal, it at least gives you scars. Patches of unfeeling calluses that make it easier not to dwell on the pieces you've lost along the way. I still miss Carla, and while occasionally date, it's always half-hearted. My sister says I sabotage any chance I have of finding anyone, or of really being happy. That I have to stop blaming myself for something terrible that happened that wasn't my fault. Maybe she's right. But I'm not too sure. Because yesterday, I got into an elevator at my company's brand new building in London. The same company where I'd worked with Tommy some 4,000 miles away and at least one lifetime ago. I haven't heard from him in years, and when I tried to find him, the company director yesterday afternoon, he is no longer listed. But that was after the elevator, and even if I found him, I don't know that it would make any difference. Because I stepped into the new elevator for the first time, I realized that I was in a box made of mirrors. Highly polished, chrome-framed mirrors along each wall of the elevator car, as well as the closing doors themselves. Immediately, my mind flashed back to that night with Carla, back pressed up against her as I stared at my doubled and redoubled reflection stretching away towards some unknown destination. Just like that night, I could see an infinite number of selves and all connected to each other and to me, all of them terrible in their similarities and slight variations of appearance and angle. All except one. Among them all, I could see one reflection that moved when I did not. 
that was occupied by not only my own staring figure, but a second one as well. A dark shape that cradled the face that wasn't my face and whispered in my ear that was not my own. It was Carla. Or something with her shape. The sight of her made me gasp, and I would have turned to try and find her if I wasn't frozen to the spot. She looked the same as I remembered her, at least mostly. Her face and chest were speckled with black and maroon flecks of dirt or blood, and the hand that stroked the cheek of my other had ragged yellow nails that scraped at its skin. He didn't seem to notice or mind. His focus was intent on me as I was on him. I would have said it was just reflecting my gaze, except he was nodding his head at her silent words. She broke off to look at me as they both began to smile. I glanced at the floor number above the doors. Two more to go and then I could get out of here. Looking back at them, I saw that they had begun twisting and jumping, their images bouncing more and more as they... And then they were gone. I had just a moment to stare into the empty place my reflection should have been, and then the door slid open. Gasping for air, I stumbled to my office and locked the door, hiding in there most of the day before taking the stairs back down to my car. I'm getting on a plane to fly back home in 20 minutes, if I make it that far. The planning and the motion of running, of trying to hide or fight, it makes me feel a bit better or at least distracts me. I'm staying in crowds, hoping that whatever is hunting me can't or won't attack me in public. But I have no illusions of winning, or really getting away. I don't understand what this is or how to fight it, if it can even be fought. So I write this down as more of a warning for others, and maybe an epitaph for myself. So I'll end with this. Don't play this game or anything similar. You may think it sounds like a fun dare, but it's not. You may think it's all a joke, but it's not. I can't make you believe me, and I understand by telling about it I'm risking making it worse, but this didn't start with me, so I have no reason to think it would stop whether I write this or not. So take this for what it is. An earnest warning from a dead man. And if you don't listen to it, well, you only have yourself to blame. It was four in the morning, and my friends and I were still awake after a night of drunken debauchery. A final hoorah before Brandon Jr. was born, and our friend would succumb to fatherhood. Even though we'd mostly sobered up by that point, we didn't want the party to end. We'd been sitting on the couch for hours, rehearsing our favorite college stories. Brandon stretched out, yawned, and looked at his watch. I should probably head home, he said. Gotta get a few hours of sleep before work. Those were the words we'd been dreading for hours. We'd been carefully tiptoeing around any topic that would remind us we needed to return to our normal lives. Anything that would tell us the night was over. Chris shook his head. You fall asleep at the wheel. Just crash here tonight. Brandon stared at the couch, eyes half-lidded. I really need to get home. If I crash now, I might not wake up till noon. I hugged the cushion I was holding against my chest and rested my chin against its soft surface. I was wide awake. 
I'd gotten my second wind around two in the morning, and I was still feeling it. Not yet, I thought. I didn't want the night to end. There'd be time for sleep and responsibilities in the morning. This was our time, our night. Niles interrupted my train of thought. Well, if you're going to drive, he said, waving his hands dismissively, you should at least get coffee. Better yet, let's get breakfast at Denny's, replied Chris. Brandon looked at his watch again, his lips thinned into a sly grin. I mean, I guess there's no point trying to sleep now, right? Might as well stay up all night, right? Yeah, okay, let's go for breakfast, but after, I really need to get going. Good, I chimed in, leaping off the couch. I'm starving. It had gotten much colder outside since our last beer run around midnight. Dew coated the few blades of grass that had begun to sprout since spring had finally come. A small blanket of fog hung about a foot off the ground, just enough to create an eerie atmosphere, but not enough to obscure anything from view. A sheet of ice covered the windows of Brandon's car. We piled inside and cranked up the heat, waiting for it to melt before we could leave. I'd forgotten how peaceful Indianapolis could be at night. The streets were empty and parking lots were barren. If not for the neon lights or the few convenience stores, the city would have looked like a ghost town. Brandon drove us through the deserted streets and to one of the few places open at that ungodly hour. As we pulled into the Denny's, we saw a car already parked there. Just a small black Toyota. It was inconspicuous except for the fact that the back passenger door on the right side hung open. and There was no one in sight. Creepy, muttered Brandon as he parked several spots away from the car. Niles snorted. A drunk probably just forgot to close it. Since I was in that very seat, Chris peered at me and snickered. Sounds like something you do. <laughs> Shut up, I replied. I stepped out of the car and made it a point to close the door as theatrically as possible. Slammed shut with a loud thud that resonated in the empty lot. We stepped inside and were greeted by an exhausted-looking older woman. Cheryl was written on her name tag. Tabler Booth, she asked, her voice devoid of any enthusiasm. At 4.30 in the morning, I couldn't blame her. Booth, please, answered Brandon. She eyed him closely, grabbed a handful of menus, and escorted us to our seats. Start you off with a drink? Nothing for me, Brandon replied. Chris, Niles, and I asked for water. Cheryl handed us the menus one by one. I'll give you a minute, she said, before turning on her heels and walking into the kitchen. From the corner of my eyes, I could see her staring at Chris. He never failed to attract the ladies, young or old. Something about his dimples, I'm sure. I opened the menu and looked through the options. My stomach was in a weird state of hunger and unwillingness to eat. It wasn't ready for breakfast, but at the same time, it hadn't been fed anything but booze since supper, so it demanded to be filled. I picked something small and waited for Cheryl to return. In the meantime, I chatted with the others. What'll it be? Cheryl asked suddenly. I hadn't even seen her come up. Brandon smiled politely. Whole grain banana waffles, please. She scribbled down his order on a notepad, her hand moving in quick, jagged motions. And can I have some coffee? She added. She stared at him coldly. No. No, he replied. You didn't want anything earlier when I asked you. You're not getting any now, said Cheryl. 
I couldn't tell if she was serious or just playfully busting his balls. Brandon said nothing. I ordered my meal and then Niles ordered as well. When it came to Chris's turn, Cheryl's attitude clearly changed. Her gaze softened, her voice became lighter, and her scowl turned into a subtle smile. What can I get for you, dear? She asked in a sing-song voice. He grinned. Cheese omelet. If you don't mind, I'll have two coffees. He winked. Cheryl's nose crinkled and I heard her sneering as she looked at Brandon from the corner of her eyes. Of course, dear, she answered. The clatter of her heels on the floor as she walked away made me wonder how she could have surprised me earlier. I must have been too distracted to hear her. I don't think the server likes you very much, I told Brandon. He laughed and shrugged. It's because I keep making bedroom eyes at Chris. She sees me as a rival, he joked. Chris laughed. Now, now, there's enough for me to go around. Niall snorted. She's only being nice to you because you're sitting next to me. She clearly likes me. Yeah, that's what you said about Samantha, too. Remind me again who closed the deal with her, taunted Chris. Niles elbowed him. Dick, he mumbled. Cheryl came back with two cups of coffee. She stretched her arms over the table and set them both in front of Chris. She then placed a hand on his shoulder and looked him in the eye. Here you go, dear, she said before pulling away. Your food will be out in a minute. Chris thanked her, then waited for her to be out of sight before handing Brandon the extra cup of coffee. Again, I wasn't sure if Cheryl was serious or messing with us. Her curt behavior was either teeming with playful sarcasm or genuine. Whichever it was, it was making me feel tense. I felt like I had to walk on eggshells around her. I wondered if she was treating her other customers the same way, but when I glanced over at the booth at the other tables, I remembered we were alone. She's being weird, right? I asked. Niall shrugged. It's 4.30. She's probably been here all night and wants to go home. Give her some slack. I mean, she works night shift at Denny's, for crying out loud. We're lucky she hasn't flipped us off and walked off yet. Brandon brought the cup of coffee to his face and inhaled the fumes. I could see a sparkle of glee twinkling in his eyes as he took a sip. It was exactly what he needed. Man, he said. I haven't pulled an all-nighter since we graduated. When did we get to be so old and boring? Around the time we started having to do our own taxes, I think, I answered. Chris groaned. Uh, don't remind me. I still need to get that done. I don't know what the big fuss is about, said Niles, as he absentmindedly played with a straw wrapper. You should need to put a few numbers in a few boxes. It's not the end of the world. Until you make a mistake... I replied, tapping my index finger against the table. Then, the government owns your ass, all because you declared $3 less than what you made. Niles laughed. It doesn't work that way. That's what they want you to think, joked Brandon. Out of the blue, Cheryl set my plate down in front of me, jumped, startled by her stealthy approach. Thanks, I whispered, flustered. I could feel my cheeks turning red. She gave everyone their food and let us eat in peace. From time to time, I spotted her looking at us from across the restaurant. There was something about the way she did it that made me nervous. She didn't have the attentive gaze of someone checking up on us. No, there was something more aggressive about it, something almost predatory. It gave me the creeps. I ended up wasting half of my meal, partially because I couldn't stomach the food, and partially because of Cheryl's prying eyes. 
I felt as though she'd jumped me if I let my guard down. Brandon pushed his empty plate away, then cracked his back. Oh yeah, that's what I needed. The other two looked about done as well, so I set my utensils down and leaned away from the plate. Nothing like mediocre breakfast food before sunrise, mused Chris. He turned to Brandon. You mind if we stop by the grocery store before we go back to my place? I need to grab milk. Brandon shrugged. Sure. There was a moment of silence as we all looked at one another, trying to gauge whether or not we would extend our stay with another cup of coffee. This time it was Niles who made the first move by slipping back into his coat. In turn, we did the same and then grabbed whatever we'd set on the table. Wallets, keys, glove. We pocketed them all. We then wandered to the register and flagged Cheryl down. Leaving so soon, dear? She asked, making no effort to hide the fact that she was addressing Chris and Chris alone. He smiled. Sorry, honey. I wish we could stick around longer, but we need to beat rush hour traffic, he joked. She put her hand on his forearm and smiled back at him. I'm sure I'll be seeing you again soon, dear. We left the Denny's and walked into the parking lot. It was still as cold as when we left. That black car was still sitting there, still empty, and with the door still hanging open. I couldn't help feeling that someone was going to jump out at us, but no one did. We got back in Brandon's car and drove to an outdoor mall a few blocks away. The grocery store was at the very end of a row of blackened storefronts. Its lights were dim and there was no one inside, as though it was closed. Isn't this place supposed to be open 24-7? I asked. Brandon put the car in park. I thought so. Let me check. He got out and sprinted to the sliding doors. They remained closed. He peered inside, stretched his head out, shrugged, and then came back. There's carts blocking the entrance. Guess they're closed, he said. We didn't think it was that weird. Not all grocery stores were open this early, but I was sure this one was supposed to be. Brandon started driving, and as we passed the entrance, I noticed the poster on the sign. 24-7, I said, pointing to it. Chris motioned to a second set of doors. We probably have to get in through here. Makes sense, replied Brandon. He parked the car and we cautiously headed over. I kept staring at the poster, expecting it to change. The store didn't look like it was supposed to be open, but despite my concerns, the automatic doors slid open when we approached. We got a cart and stepped into the produce section. The grocery store was as eerie on the inside as it looked from the outside. No janitors, no stalkers, no clerks in sight. With the dim lighting and the lack of music coming from the speakers, it felt like we were trespassing. Well, since we're here, mumbled Niles. He grabbed a few vegetables and placed them in the cart. You guys need anything? I shook my head. Nah, but take your time. I'm going to find a bathroom. I'd have gone when we were at Denny's, but I'd been too eager to leave the restaurant. Now that I was in a half-lighted, abandoned grocery store, I regretted my decision. I would have taken Cheryl's stank eye over roaming the empty aisles of a search of a toilet in any day. Finally, I found a sign hanging above a doorframe along the back wall. Thick brown rubber strips hung from the top to obscure the black store from its customers. I'd always been a little paranoid about going there, afraid employees would think I was trying to steal from the stock room, but that fear was even worse, knowing we were all alone in the store. My bladder made the decision to proceed. Thankfully, there was no one back there to accuse me of trespassing. Just the stock room and an open door to my right. I handled my business and quickly ran out to try and rejoin my friends. It was quiet, 
but I heard my buddies talking, which made it harder to find them. I had to walk from aisle to aisle trying to locate them. When I reached the cereal aisle, I felt a twinge in my chest as I spotted a familiar form dart by on the other end. I couldn't say for sure, but I could have sworn I'd seen Cheryl. She was still wearing her Denny's uniform. I continued to cross to the next aisle, trying to catch another glimpse of her, but I didn't make it on time to see her emerge from the other side. I started running, but I was still too slow. Just as I was about to pass into the produce section, I bumped into Niles. He and Brandon were standing in front of the milk display. Did you guys see Cher- I started, but stopped when I realized someone was missing. Where's Chris? Said he dropped his wallet in the car, answered Niles. He should be back any second now, said Brandon. He backed up until he could see the car from the grocery store window. I don't see him. He's got to be in here somewhere. I felt my stomach twisting in knots. I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. I wondered if it was just fatigue finally catching up to me. Cheryl must have been a figment of my imagination, or maybe I just fallen asleep for a microsecond and dreamt I'd seen her. Regardless, I was worried about Chris. I shot him a text message. Let's just find Chris and get out of here, okay? This place gives me the creeps. Niles laughed. <laughs> yeah, I've got all I need. You? He asked, looking at Brandon. Brandon shrugged. I was just along for the ride. The shopping cart whirred as we walked down the aisle and toward the front of the store. I kept hoping I'd hear my phone going off with a reply from Chris, but it remained silent. Brandon seemed perplexed as we reached the cash register. Weird. I thought he'd be here, he said. He jogged down the main aisle, craning his head to peer into each section. Across the store, he called out, Not over here! I caught a shape from the corner of my eye. Turned my head, expecting either Cheryl or Chris, but instead I saw an employee. Ready to check out? he said. Brandon, who was on his way back to us, shrugged. I guess he's outside. Niles placed the groceries on the counter. The clerk scanned the items one by one and carefully set them in plastic bags. I could feel myself becoming more nervous. It felt like the clerk was taking forever to do his job, but I was probably just too eager to find Chris. I alternated between looking out the window and staring at my watch. It was almost 5.30. I needed to sleep. Should have gotten coffee earlier. I could feel my eyelids dropping. My anxiety about Chris's whereabouts was the only thing keeping me from falling asleep. Brandon put a hand on my shoulder. Buddy, we're done. I rubbed my tired eyes and took one of the grocery bags. Oh, good, I whispered. I was really hoping to find Chris standing outside waiting for us, but part of me already knew he wouldn't be there. The sliding doors opened, we stepped into the parking lot, and we looked around. No sign of Chris. I turned to Brandon's car. The passenger door where Chris had been sitting hung open. No one in sight. No one left behind. That was three days ago. No one has seen or heard from Chris since. He hasn't responded to text messages or calls. The cops tried tracking his phone, but the last pings it sent were received from the cell tower nearest to the grocery store. The security footage only shows him exiting the store and looking as though he's walking to someone before it cut to static. There's no way of knowing what happened for sure, but I know I saw Cheryl at the grocery store that night. I know she's behind it. 
problem is, Denny's has no record of a Cheryl on staff, and the waitress that was supposed to be working that night has also gone missing. She was last seen driving a black Toyota. It was found in the Denny's parking lot the next day, her uniform folded and waiting for her on the back seat, on the right side of the car, 